Well, good morning. Well, we are in week three of a four-week series uh, where we are talking about the person of Jesus Christ. As we look at the person of Christ, uh, our hope and prayer is that we see that he is more than enough for all of our needs. And we've been trying to, to, to paint this picture of Christ being more than enough for our needs by looking at the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, to seven letters that Jesus wrote to individual churches in Asia in the first century. And as he wrote these letters to these churches, he signed them in different ways. He signed them highlighting different aspects of his character because he wanted to show those seven churches that he was more than enough for the situations that they were facing. And each of those letters ends with the phrase, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Therefore, this is for us to hear as well. This is a message for you and I to, to hear and embrace as well. There are things communicated in these seven letters that Jesus wants you and I to know because he wants us to know that he's more than enough for all of our needs. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we began this series two weeks ago today by also remembering that Jesus has been more than enough for the needs of those of us who gather here on Sundays. And, and through some cardboard testimonies that you see up here on the on the stage with me, uh, we, we were able to show how Jesus has been at work among us, providing for all of our needs. And two weeks ago, we talked about how God loves us, and He desires a real relationship with us that goes deep. And last week, we talked about how when we go through difficulty, or, or times, or periods of feeling rather insignificant, that God can provide His daily grace for us, and that the difficulty that we go through is only for a time or a season. Today we're going to continue that series uh, by looking at another aspect of the person of Christ highlighted in these seven letters and also mentioned in the testimonies that we shared earlier. And that is we're going to highlight the fact that our God is a God of truth. And that matters for our lives and it matters for those uh, that God chooses to use to lead us. And so that's what we're going to see today as we look at two more letters to churches the letters to the church in Pergamum, and the letter to the church in Thyatira. Now, now before we, we get rolling, looking at those two letters, uh, I want to share a, a make-believe story with you, a scenario. Let's just say, for instance, that when church is over today, I say, guess what? As a church family, to end the month of July, we're all going to go to San Antonio together. We're going to go see Shamu. And you'd be excited about that. The thought of going to San Antonio, of seeing Shamu, that, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. So we say, okay, we're going to go, and, and I'm appointing myself the leader of our clan to get us from here to there. And so we, we pull out of here, and we're going to, you know, have a 500-car caravan heading, heading to San Antonio. And so I say, whatever you do, just follow me. But when we get to I-35, rather than taking I-35 south to Dallas, I hang a right and start heading north to Oklahoma City. Now, now when I do that, my, my phone is going to start ringing off the hook, right? Everybody's going to wonder, what in the world are you doing? Why are we going north? And of course, my answer would be, because the wind is blowing from the south. And strangely, you all stay in the caravan, and we're all heading north on I-35. Uh, but when we get to Wichita, Kansas, I begin angling northeast. 
And again, my phone starts ringing. Mark, what in the world are you doing? We figured that you just wanted to see Kansas and we're going to turn around. Gas is cheaper up there, whatever it is. I say, no, we're going to go northeast now because I just saw pass us a car with Texas plates. We're going to follow them and we'll certainly get there. Strangely enough, you all stay in the caravan and we angle northeast. Eventually, we get to Kansas City. When we get to Kansas City, I turn the blinker on and you think, thank goodness, he's finally come to his senses. And I turn left into Taco Bell and stop. And, and you get out of your cars and now you're banging on my window. What are we doing stopping? I say, we're here. Don't you see? It looks like the Alamo. They have Tex-Mex inside. You know what? That would be a demonstration of leadership, right? If I head off in a direction and, and you followed me, that would be leadership. But one thing about that kind of leadership is that would be leadership in the wrong direction. I took us someplace, but not to the right place. You know, solid leadership follows more than just the wind that's blowing, follows more than just the car that passes us on the highway, and follows more than just what we think the Alamo might look like, our imagination. Solid leadership is based on something real. You see, I would have my reasons for taking us to Kansas City, but they would be lousy reasons. Solid leadership is not based just in some reasons. Solid leadership is based in reality. And if I was going to be a good leader to take us from Norman to San Antonio, then I better be following the map. Because the map would verify the direction that we were heading. You know, I share that make-believe story today, uh, which sounds ridiculous, right? No one would actually follow me there. But, but I share that story because when it comes to the church, there really is the possibility of leaders taking people in the wrong direction, of leaders taking churches someplace but not the right place, of leaders following the, the winds of cultural whims and taking congregations to a place that God never intended them to go of leaders who just envision something in their own imagination of what God must be like, and then causing their church to stop and camp out at that spot inappropriately. You know what? That possibility really exists. And if you look at the history of the church, it's happened many times when when church leaders separate themselves from the map that God has given us in His Word. And when that happens, congregations can be led astray. That's something that happened to two churches in the first century. Uh, The church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira, when they were led astray to the wrong spot by some leadership within their midst that separated from the reality of the map that God had given. But you know what is interesting is that Christ doesn't let them stay there. He doesn't let them stay there. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. He cares desperately about where people are, and he's revealed himself to us in a specific way so that when the church begins to veer off, 
Christ will intervene and cause correction to come. We, we see that in these two churches. You know what, that ought to give us a lot of comfort. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to share a real-life example of this. Uh, you know, just yesterday, my wife and I were interacting with some Mormon missionaries who were coming through our neighborhood. And we were talking to them about life and about the church. And one of the things that they said was, they said that, you know, the church had become apostate or the church had wandered off into the weeds. Really what they were saying was, the church has ended up in Kansas City over 2,000 years from the time that Christ founded the church and the Spirit came at Pentecost until now. The church has wandered off in the wrong direction. And, of course, their solution is that Joseph Smith is the corrective measure to take the church back to the right spot. But I think that their calculation is wrong for many reasons, but one of the reasons why I would say that their calculation is wrong is that it's not like our God. It is not like Jesus Christ to stay hands-off with his church and allow us to stay in Kansas City when he wants us in San Antonio. It's not like our God, it's not like Jesus Christ to allow the church to be led by lousy leadership. As a matter of fact, Jesus wants more for us than lousy leadership. He wants us to follow him in his truth. And we're going to see that this morning by looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 to 29, and the letters to the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to see a couple of things today as we look at these two letters to the churches. The first one that we're going to see is as we look at the letter to the church in Pergamum, when we're going to see that Jesus desires more than compromise. Jesus desires more than our compromise. We're going to see that from this church to the letter to the church at Pergamum. This is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. There is the signature. There is Jesus' signature to the letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And so to the church in Pergamum, Jesus writes and says to them, I desire more than your compromise. Now, where do we see that in the passage? Well, we see that in the signature that Jesus gives to them. In the signature that Jesus gives, the part of his character that he, that he identifies as vitally crucial to them at this point was the fact that he was the one with the sharp double-edged sword. Now, now, what did Jesus mean when he said that he was the one with the sharp double-edged sword? Well, I think that one of the things that's helpful for us is to, to remember something about the city of Pergamum. See, the city of Pergamum was a provincial capital in that area. It was a very important city in that area of Asia. And within this city of Pergamum 
lived a governor who would have had something known as the right of the sword. See, the governor of Pergamum would have had the ability to take a double-edged sword and to execute anyone with it that he chose. That was a very significant power, and it caused people to live in fear of the governor because at his choice, at his whimsy, he was able to execute judgment. Apparently, uh, many people had seen him wield that kind of power, including the church at Pergamum who saw their friend Antipas killed, as we see recorded in verse 13. See, to this city, this church in a city that was used to the governor being the one who held the sword in his hand and who had right of the sword, Jesus writes to them and says, Hey, guess what, church in Pergamum? I'm the one who rightfully holds the sword. What was Jesus saying to the church in Pergamum? To the church in Pergamum, Jesus was saying, Regardless of the fear and terror that an earthly leader is able to put upon you, regardless of the chaos and the anarchy that seems to result from someone who is yielding power in an inappropriate way, regardless of what you might be feeling because you're living in that environment, I want you to know that I'm the one who's really in control. Just as an outlaw or a bandit might be able to hold people hostage with a gun, it's the police officer that holds the gun with the proper authority. And Jesus was saying he was the one who had the proper authority. He was the one who rightly held the sword. He was the one who would be able to judge the earth and all of its inhabitants. See, Jesus was reminding the church in Pergamum that he was the one who was in charge. But more than just reminding them that he was the one who was in charge, there's something special about this sword that we see in other spots in the book of Revelation. You see, the, 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 the signatures that Jesus gave in Revelation 2 and 3 to the letters to the churches were echoes of the vision that John saw of Jesus in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, we see something special about the sword that Jesus was to judge the earth by. This sword was coming out of his mouth. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says this, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. The, the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, tells us more about this sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ. Describes it as the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, what... Jesus was saying to the church in Pergamum when he writes them this letter is that he is the one who holds the sword and he is the one who is able to judge and the judgment that he will give will be on the basis of his word. He speaks truth and that truth penetrates our lives and issues to us God's holy standards. Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum and lets them know that he is the one who holds the sword. Now, why would Jesus highlight this to them? I mean, part of it certainly is because of the right of the sword that the provincial governor would have held. But I think the other reason why Jesus highlights this aspect of his character was because the people in Pergamum had gotten sloppy with the truth of God. They had begun to compromise. And it started with their leaders 
and went on down through some members of their church. Now, the city of Pergamum was a place uh, that was pretty rough when it came to the religious climate. Uh, This was a major city, and in this city there were four temples to various pagan cults, huge temples to Zeus and Dionysus and Athene and, and, and others, where people would go and offer sacrifices to these pagan gods. There was even another temple in uh, Pergamum where that was dedicated to Augustus Caesar. It was the only temple that was built to the Caesar cult while the Caesar was still reigning. Augustus Caesar, of course, was the Caesar that ruled Rome when Christ was born. You see, this was a city that had lots of pagan worship in it, and in each of these pagan temples, there would have been seats of power. Jesus describes this city as the the city where Satan has his throne, as we see there in, in, in verse 13. The city where Satan dwells. I think when Jesus is saying that, he's, he's reminding them, hey, I'm aware of the fact that you live in one of the roughest religious climates in the entire world. You live in this city where all of these pagan cults are happening. You live in a city where the, 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 the temple to Caesar Augustus actually stands, where the pressure for you to bow down on your knees and to say Caesar is Lord is greater than maybe any of the other cities where your neighbors live. Jesus recognizes that they were living in that difficult place, in that difficult environment. He also recognizes that as they're living in that difficult environment, that they weren't caving in to the pressure. He acknowledges that they were remaining faithful to his name, even as they were experiencing difficulty. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me, even when some of you were killed because of your belief in my name. They wouldn't even say, I'll follow Caesar now when one of their brothers was killed. And Jesus sees that and he acknowledges them for that. However, Jesus also says that even though you're remaining faithful to me in name, you're beginning to compromise your relationship with me on the basis of truth. And that was the problem. You see, Jesus said that, that at the church at Pergamum, there were people who had begun following the teaching of Balaam. Now, we hear that and we go, what in the world are they talking about, the teaching of Balaam? That sounds bizarre to us. Was there a a pastor in the church in Pergamum named Balaam or Balak? Uh, What was he talking about? No, Balaam and Balak, that's talking about an Old Testament story found in the book of Numbers chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 31. It's a story about how Balaam decided to take out the nation of Israel and their allegiance to God by trying to compromise their convictions. Balaam talked to some Moabite women and convinced them to go and seduce the Israelite men so that they would walk away from their God and follow into the evil practices of the Moabites and their pagan religion. That was what Balaam did in the Old Testament. He attacked the people of God by having them compromise their beliefs. And ever since that time, any leader that asked the people of God to compromise towards their surroundings was seen as someone who was standing in the tradition of Balaam. And so in the church in Pergamum, there were some teachers who were encouraging the members of that church there 
to compromise their beliefs. Specifically, they were trying to get them to participate in some of the pagan practices of their city, uh, celebrating these feasts to idols, committing sexual immorality, probably referring to temple prostitution, and keep, you know, taking part in that practice. See, apparently there were some leaders, some teachers within the church in Pergamum who, though they would say that we are with Christ no matter what, wanted to begin to compromise to allow their church to look a little more normal amidst their surroundings. And so they would encourage the people within their church to participate in a pagan festival and, and worship an idol here and there. They, they, would, they would encourage their people to maybe visit a temple prostitute, that that was okay practice at the time. They had begun to compromise the truth of God to be more palatable to their surroundings. And Jesus sees that and he says, I want more than your compromise. I desire more than that in my relationship with you. And he says, you need to, to, to recognize this and repent of it, otherwise I will come to you and with the sword that exists in my mouth, verse 16, I will fight against you. In other words, you better clean this thing up. You better turn back to me because I don't desire your compromise. That was the, the word that Jesus gave to the church in Pergamum. But the question is, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us today? Is it true for us also today that Jesus wants more than our compromise? Absolutely it is. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus desires more than that we compromise. You know, as believers in Christ here, uh, most of us would not be willing to walk out this door and say that suddenly we were going to follow Allah instead of Christ. To walk out this door and say that we were Hindu instead of Christian. To walk out this door and say that we're a Buddhist instead of a follower of Christ. Most of us would not make that step. But you know what? There's all kinds of subtle pressure upon us to compromise on the truths that God has revealed to us in, his, in the map of His Word. And what's interesting to me is that to the church in Pergamum, the leadership that took people into those areas of sin were coming from the leaders of the church. And so the question is, in the American church today, is there some lousy leadership in spots that is leading the church into error? You know what, I think that there is. I think that there are some spots where decisions are being made and leadership steps are being taken that are taking the church away from what is revealed about God in the Scripture into error. You know, one of those things that we see uh, deals in the realm of uh, homosexuality. Now, one thing that I think is totally clear is that the Bible doesn't categorize homosexuality as anything but a sin, a sin similar to, to many others that all, you know, all of us here are sinners. All of us have sinned in some way. But you know what? There is a, there's a pressure, an undercurrent within our culture that's wanting to say that suddenly it's no longer okay to call homosexuality a sin as the Bible does. Now, it's not okay for believers to hate those who struggle with this, this sin. But the culture would want us to go even beyond that. The culture would want us to actually say that it is no longer something that is in the category of sinful. Uh, some churches and church leaders have even gone so far as to say that it's, 
it's just okay. We'll, we'll ordain people to serve within our churches who are openly uh, homosexual. Uh, the, it's okay, and we'll, we'll go ahead and, and marry people within our churches in homosexual marriage. Now, it's one of the things that's happening in our culture right now uh, that reminds me a lot of what was happening in Pergamum. In order to be normal, the church in Pergamum wanted to participate in cultic practice. They were compromising in that area. In order to be normal, the church in America is facing pressure to normalize homosexuality as a non-sinful act. And we have to be careful of that. Christ wants more than our compromise. You know, another area where that's true is in the area of exclusive claims of Christ in salvation. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That exclusive claim of Christ is something that's very clear in Scripture. However, it's something that our culture doesn't like. It's something that sounds too exclusive. It's something that sounds erroneous to our culture. And so there's a a, a subtle pressure to compromise and to say that as long as you're sincere, then you're going to be okay. Say that as long as you do good, then you're going to be all right. And certain churches are, are, are taking stances that are walking away from the position that Christ is the only way of salvation and compromising that in order to be more normal within our culture. But we have to resist that temptation because Christ wants more than our compromise. The same thing can be true uh, in, in areas of, of prosperity teaching. You know, we talked last week about how difficulty in the Christian life is, is part of the game, and we don't know when our difficulty will end, and that might include extreme poverty, as it did for one of the churches we looked at last week. Um, but, you know, in, in our American culture, there's a pressure that our Christianity would be, deliver more than just, be able to deliver more than just forgiveness, but wealth and health. And, you know, there are church leaders and churches who have seen that and, and tried to capitalize on that to, to, to make us believe that just belief in Christ will make us wealthy and will make us healthy in this life. There's a temptation for that, but we need to remember that Jesus desires more than just our compromise. We need to remember that He has a sharp and double-edged sword that He will bring to us and correct us if we find ourselves compromising amidst the world around us. Because He is a God of truth. I think about that for each of our individual lives. And, you know, it's possible for lousy leadership to exist in churches and churches to walk off in those directions. But it's also possible for all of us, just individually in our lives, to begin to lose our roadmap. To begin to try to get to San Antonio by following whatever direction seems to be blowing around us. And the reality is that all of us need to get our compass, get our map, receive the direction that God has given us as to life and our future and what He has for us. Um, You know, I I, I like to play uh, spades. You ever ever play the card game spades? Uh, It's a great game. But you go around in spades and and, uh, everybody plays a a lead suit. If you don't like spades... We'll call it Uno. But you go around and, 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 and if you have somebody leads hearts and 
If you have a heart, you play a heart. But if you don't have hearts, uh, what, what can you play? You can play a spade. And you know, when you throw a spade out there, even if there's an ace of hearts, which would normally win the hand, if you play a two of spades, that two of spades trumps whatever's in there from hearts. We learn the principle of trumping in spades and uno. The uno card allows you to call it whatever you want to call it. It trumps whatever else is there. We learn that principle there, and we need to apply that principle in our lives. You know, when we read God's Word, we're stacking our hand with trump cards. When we read God's truth, we're reading truth that trumps whatever else we might hear on the news, whatever else we might hear on conversation at the coffee shop, whatever else we might read in, in popular fiction. Whatever else is out there, it's trumped by God's truth. You know, if we're, if we're going to live our lives the way God wants us to, then we need to stack our hand with the trump cards. And those are found in His Word. And the, the question for us from an application standpoint is, when are you stacking your deck? When are you ingesting God's Word into your life? You know, as time has gone on, information gathering for us has gotten easier. You know, there once was a time when the only scripture that a town had was in the church and you had to go on Sunday or on a night of the week or whenever you could go there and hear it read orally. That was it. Then the printing press came along and, and wealth in the Western world and suddenly we all have our own copy. Now we've got CDs that we can listen to or we can podcast messages. We can have Christian radio accessible to us, whatever it is. We have access right now to an unprecedented level of, of different ways to receive God's truth to us. The question is, which of those things are you taking advantage of? How are you ingesting God's Word into your life? How are you stacking your deck with God's truth? You know, one of the things that, that happened about a month ago, I went away for a few days and, and uh, just was rethinking about my life and and uh, priorities and, and just study of God's Word being one of those. And, and I came back with the, the desire to just start my day every day a little earlier um, because at that time it would be a little more uninterrupted for me to just be able to spend some time reading God's Word and thinking about how it interacts with my life. See, I needed to check the road map. You know, I, I've, I've, I mean this not to, to pat myself on the back, but I, I've been to I've been to seminary, I've been in thousands of Bible studies and hours of Bible study and all this kinds of stuff. And, and the reality is that I still need to read this. I still need to check the map. Because you know what, that Texas plate can still lead me northeast if I'm not careful. And I need to continue to check if I'm heading in the direction that God wants. You know what, I think every person here is in the same boat. How are you checking the map in your life? Jesus wants more than our compromise. He holds the double-edged sword. second thing I want us to see, though, and we'll see this quickly, is that Jesus wrote another letter to another church. He wrote a letter to the church in Thyatira to tell them this. He wanted them to know that he desired more than corrupt leaders. Jesus writes the church in Thyatira, and he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, 
and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To this church in Thyatira, Jesus writes, and he reveals himself as the one who has eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. This is the description of Christ from Revelation 1. This is the description of Christ from Daniel chapter 10 and following. This was a description of Christ as the one who is able to see all things. And Jesus reveals himself in this way to the church in Thyatira because in Thyatira there was a particular leader of the church, probably not named Jezebel. Again, another type from an Old Testament temptress who led God's people astray. But to that leader who was there, that Jezebel-like leader who was leading God's people into immorality and was leading them away, Jesus wanted that church to know that Jesus saw through her act. He wanted the church in Thyatira to know that he saw Jezebel's heart and that she was leading God's people astray. And that he was going to do something about that. And he also wanted them to know that as he saw her heart and he saw that she was in error, he also saw that in that church there were faithful people still clinging to Christ and that he would reward them for their faithfulness. The one with eyes like blazing fire sees all and is able to discern between the wicked and the righteous, even within one congregation, even when the wicked one is the leader. Jesus wanted that church to know that because he wanted to encourage them to remain faithful even in a difficult place. You know what? I think that truth also holds for us. I think that truth also holds for us. You know, there are leaders in churches that have done some pretty difficult things. You know, if we had time, we could go around, and I know because I've talked to some of you, situations where leaders in churches have placed you in spots with, of great difficulty, where, where leaders in churches have committed egregious public sins, where leaders in churches have led people off into true immorality and, and difficulty and caused all kinds of doubt and questioning. And you know what happens a lot of times when somebody goes through a situation like that? Is they begin to become questioning of all leadership in a church. They begin to become kind of jaded and waiting for the other shoe to drop, thinking that somebody has an impure motive or they're, they're doing something wrong uh, no matter what's happening. And I think that part of the reason why we feel that way is it's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism because we think, you know what? If Christ isn't looking out for his church, then I better. I better make sure that everything is okay. And we take on the responsibility ourselves to discern 
right from wrong in every statement that every person ever makes. The reality is that it's a very freeing thing to know that Jesus has eyes like fire and he can see right through the facade and he can see the faithful and the wicked even in one location. That ought to encourage us to continue to interact within the church knowing that Jesus can see and that he will take care of difficulty even within the same place. Now, I recently saw the movie The Dark Knight uh, this last week and you know I was one of several million Americans that went and saw that movie. Uh, but one of the things about that movie that's really interesting is uh, that in the, in the movie, you know, Gotham City has become a difficult place that's overrun by crime bosses and, and uh, you know, some, some pretty wicked people. Um, and, and the people had begun to pull away. They no longer even wanted to go out at night because no one could secure the peace. But Gotham begins to spring back to life when they realize that Batman is fighting for them. And that Commissioner Gordon is willing to arrest the bad guys. And Harvey Dent is willing to prosecute them. And if, if that situation exists, then suddenly the people have confidence to once again engage in life in Gotham. And you know what? When I read this passage, and I see that Christ is the one with eyes like blazing fire, with feet like burnished bronze, it reminds me that Jesus is in control of his church. He's not going to allow for corrupt leaders and compromise and lousy leadership, but he will correct things himself. And that encourages me, like the people of Gotham, to continue to interact in the church that he has for us. We can be encouraged because he's in charge. Jesus Christ desires more for us than compromise and corrupt leaders. He desires more than lousy leadership, and he's more than enough for all of our needs. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the time that you have given us today. We thank you for your word and for the power of it. Father, we thank you that you have called us to truth and that you have called us to stand firm on it, even when our culture wants to blow us in the other direction. Father, I pray that we would be people who would find the time in our day, the time in our week, to look at your word and to stack our deck with your truth. And Father, that as we do that, that we would be willing to, to be confident and bold in our interactions with others, knowing that you will take care of all of the in-betweens, all of the mistakes, all of the other. Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us today. And we pray that you would empower us in your spirit to walk in truth in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.